Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography in the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This episode is brought to you by Masters of Photography, online masterclasses with the greatest photographers in the world. We'll have a special offer for you on Masters of Photography courses later in the show. This week, we're happy to have a special guest with us, Rishi Sanyal, Science Editor at DP Review. Rishi, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm really glad to be here. Rishi has joined us to talk about a subject which is something I really don't understand well. I have to confess, I use one of these newfangled fancy cameras with all the buttons and dials and processors, and it's got this thing called autofocus, and I really don't know how to use it. I'm going to put on my overalls and go sit on the rocking chair and get my corncob pipe and talk about back in the day when I shot film cameras. And you didn't have autofocus, and you had to turn the little thing on the lens, that little focus ring, and you had to look through the viewfinder and line up those two half circles. In fact, I kind of missed that, those two half circles. Manual focus was the way we did this for a very long time, from the beginning of photography till... When was the first... There was a camera in the 70s with a rudimentary autofocus, wasn't there? Um, I actually, to be honest, I'm not I'm not very good at the history of cameras. You're not a historian um, of autofocus. No, okay. No, you should have uh, you should have Barney on the show for that. You know, Barney, our, our uh, senior editor, he just uh, knows everything I'll, about cameras. I'll look it up and put something in the show notes. So you can you can manually focus many cameras today, and you can't do this with a point and shoot or an iPhone, but with any mirrorless or DSLR, you have an option to manually focus. And some people still want to do that. They want to buy these expensive cameras that are thousands of dollars and have all these features and turn them all off. And there is there is a reason to do that. Sure. It gives you um, absolute control over exactly where you want focus, right? And actually, with some of the new tools that are available on these cameras, um, you can actually utilize the autofocus system to help you manual focus, Um with features like split prism on Fuji cameras, which try to emulate exactly what you were talking about, lining up those two half circles, um, but you just do it on the, on the screen digitally. And it actually uses its um, autofocus system to uh, basically its phase detect pixels to give you that split prism preview. Um, there's also uh, peaking. So that's basically just an, a visual indicator, usually in red, uh, yellow, or white, uh, that shows you... Uh, like it's overlaid over your image and shows you the plane of maximum sharpness. Um, so that allows you to manual focus faster. Um, so it's, you know, if, especially if you're doing really, really shallow depth of field portraiture or macro. Um, yeah. I was going to say, I, I like doing macro photography and I usually do use manual focus for that. Or I use Jeff and I both use Fujifilm cameras, so we can't speak for the other brands, but I use the thing where I can press the shutter halfway to autofocus and then adjust it with the manual focus ring. Um, and I have focus peaking on, as you say. I just want you to explain a term you mentioned earlier, phase detection pixels. That sounds like something out of Star Wars. What is it? So phase detection is a type of autofocus system that uh, basically looks at uh, the light coming through the lens uh, from two different perspectives. And on sensor, they, they're able to do that by simply uh, masking like the left or right half of any pixel or top or bottom. Um, and uh, you could also do it by just splitting the pixel. That's the way Canon does it with dual pixel autofocus. And essentially what you're doing then is if you split a pixel, then the left part of that pixel sees the light coming in from one half of the lens and the right sees the light coming in from the other half of the lens. And if 
something is in focus, then those are going to coincide. And if it's out of focus, they're going to be offset. So you actually have to look across a strip of pixels, not just one pixel. Um, and so the principle of phase detection is, is essentially that if something is out of focus, um, that scene element will end up falling on left-looking versus right-looking pixels that are separated from each other on that strip of pixels. And so you just look at the offset, how far are they offset, and then you know pretty much how much to drive the lens to bring those features back together so that they align. And that's that's the basic principle of it. That's the way on-sensor mirrorless cameras do it, but your DSLRs have been doing this for decades. Uh, they have a separate phase detection autofocus module. Uh, so the, the way that works is you have light coming in through the lens, and um, some of the light hits that mirror in your uh, SLR and goes up to the uh, pentaprism and then you see it through your optical viewfinder. But some of that light is also deflected um, through that, that mirror to another mirror that then directs it downward. And at the bottom of your camera, there is a, a dedicated phase detect module that essentially does a similar thing where it uh, analyzes scene elements and sees how offset they are. And from that offset can calculate how to how far to move the uh, focus element in the lens to get that in focus, and that basically means that it's much faster. It's just it's decisive. It takes a measurement and it knows I need to go this much. I need to move the lens this much to get that whatever's under my autofocus point in focus. And so the lens can just the camera can just drive the lens to immediately go to that position um, rather than like hunt around for focus, which is what um, the other type of autofocus system uh, we should talk about does, which is contrast detect autofocus. Okay, wait, we'll get to that in a second. I see why you're science editor at DP Review. Um, uh, uh, not not too much of an info dump, um, but the, essentially there's an awful lot going on there that we don't think about. It's not the same as back in the old days when I turned the focus ring on my camera and things weren't blurry. What this really allows us now is to not even have to think about focusing that much, right? So autofocus systems essentially remove a burden from the photographer. Uh, I would think that a lot of people don't actually want to worry about focus. Um, there's some that enjoy the process of manually focusing. But if you could remove the um, that necessity to think about autofocus, um, moving your point to put it over your subject, moving your camera and constantly reframing to keep a point over your subject, um, like in sports photography, then that frees you up to think about composition or to really focus on the moment and get that decisive moment or to focus on other things like exposure. Um, and the latest autofocus systems, which we'll, we'll get to later, but they they really, really remove the need to even think about autofocus because they're so intelligent that they can understand the subject that you initiated to focus on and stick to that subject so you can you know, be, you'll, you'll be free to compose as you wish. And I think that's what people expect from autofocus because they, they figure, you know, I just bought this expensive camera. It's got all these smarts and it's just going to get it for me. It's going to hit the right spot because it is so smart. And yet we all run into situations where the tree just behind somebody is slightly more in focus or it, it, it misses, which is why, you know, we're, we're having this, this episode right now because, you know, yeah, all that technology is great, but it also misfires enough that, you know, we want to know how to get around that. Yeah, so uh, you're right. Uh, cameras are not perfect. They're getting better and better, but they're still not perfect. But 
autofocus is really designed not just to remove a headache, but also to allow you to get photos and capture moments that you might not have been able to in the past if you were busy manually focusing. Um, you know, whether it's sports photography or whether you're just a parent trying to shoot your two-year-old um actually toddlers or are you incredibly to take stressful photos of cats when they're moving or pets because yeah cat photos are important yes absolutely yeah <laughs> uh you know they're they're actually pets and kids are some of the most stressful um targets for autofocus systems because usually you're um, photographing them from closer up inside your home, for example. And so when they're moving, their relative distance to the camera is constantly erratically changing uh, a lot. It's The relative distance changes are huge. Um, whereas if you're shooting someone far away with a telephoto lens, um, the, uh, the the amount of movement relative to the camera, unless it's extremely fast, like a, a, a car going, going very fast, the relative distance changes are, are a little more trivial so anyway uh there are actually some autofocus improvements we can talk about a little later um that now allow children and pet photography um to be much easier because the autofocus systems can understand pets and, and kids and people and human subjects i'm going to link in the show notes to a fujifilm website and again don't think just because Jeff and I use Fujifilm cameras and we talk about them all the time, we know that there are other brands. I think there are other brands, aren't there? Two or three. They have a really good site about their autofocus mode. And there are two columns, AFS and AFC. So AFS is single mode. When you're in single mode, the focus locks when the shutter button is pressed halfway. AFC is continuous. So when you half press the shutter, it's continuously focusing when things are moving. Now, in each of these columns, there are three ways of focusing or three ways of using the autofocus, single point, zone, and wide tracking. So I'm the guy who uses single point AFS. I never use the continuous. I never use zone or wide tracking. And for most of what I shoot, it's fine. When I shoot my cats, they're blurry half the time. Um, but for most of what I shoot, it's what I want because I can pick the, the, the specific item I want to focus on. Every time I read about these advances in autofocus, I think I'm probably doing something that is causing me more trouble than is worth. And I want to know about these other modes, the zone and the wide tracking. So can you explain what the difference is between these three? Presumably all camera manufacturers have a similar three type thing. Yeah. So it's sometimes it's three, sometimes it's more um, Sony cameras, for example, have a, um, a ton of autofocus area modes. Um, and Canon and Nikon similarly have actually, I think, more than more than uh, just those three modes that the Fuji has. But essentially, they're all the same thing. Um, the idea is that uh, first we should actually cover that, like you said, there's AFS and AFC. So that's usually right. what we call it, the AF mode. So single is for static subjects and continuous is for moving subjects. Although um, we'll, get, we'll get to this later, but you can actually use AFC for static subjects um, if you use the tracking mode on cameras. Um, but uh, if, you, if you're absolutely certain your subject is static, you're fine with AFS. Um, so the single and zone and wide tracking modes that you mentioned are what we call AF area modes. It's essentially what is the area of uh, how big is your autofocus point and what's the area that it's going to cover. So um, typically manufacturers will have a single point. They'll have a, um, like 
an expand single point or um, like you, you can take the single point and then use, you know, all the points around it. You can use more yeah, points. Point. Um, you can basically grow that area. And on the Fuji camera as well, if you, um, in the single point mode, I believe it is, uh, you can just turn the dial and grow, grow that AF area, right? And you can change the size of the points and you can change the size of the zone as well. Right. So uh, so that way you, you give yourself some room for error, right? If you're trying to keep a single point on a moving cat or a rugby player, that can end up being fairly difficult. You really have to respond quickly to the erratic movements. So you want to give yourself some wiggle room so then you can grow that point and say use these nine points, um, like on Nikon cameras, on DSLR as they call it, um, like D. D9 or D25, and D25 would be 25 autofocus points. And then you can move that group of 25 autofocus points around um, around the frame to wherever you want it to be, wherever you expect the action to be for your well, composition you have in mind. But what I always worry about with that and why I don't use it is if I know where I want to be focusing, let's say I'm shooting a flower and I want to get this thing in focus, isn't it better to just use one point than 25? Because with 25, it's going to pick its own points to focus on it may not be the ones I want. Right. So single is always going to give you the most accuracy, but when it comes to fast moving subjects, it's it can be impractical. So in that case, using a, a let's say I'll just make this up using like an area of nine points or something, um, gives you gives you that wiggle room. And what the camera does is it uses the point generally for most cameras, it uses a point that is detecting the most nearby subject. Which is what you want, but if you're shooting a portrait, you don't want to focus on the nose, you want to focus on the eyes. But that, of course, there is a different autofocus mode for that. Yeah, so if you're shooting a, a sports player and you have this patch of 25 points or or like on Sony cameras, it's called flexible spot and you can make it large or small. Um, if you have that patch of points or that AF area uh, generally over your subject and um, part of that AF box ends up falling over let's say you let's say you're following a player and part of it falls um out like to the right of the player and it actually sees the, the background well that's where the algorithm to the algorithm basically is such that it's going to choose the af points that are registering the nearer subject which would be the player not the background not the tree as jeff mentioned earlier yes exactly yeah um, and so the the other focus mode that uh, we really focus a lot on testing here at DP Review is what you just called, um, or what Fujifilm calls wide tracking. And that's actually, the tracking is relatively new to Fuji cameras. It wasn't wasn't there a few years ago. Um, it was I think it was introduced a few years ago. So the wide tracking mode, as I mentioned, is something that we really focus on and test um, on all cameras thoroughly these days. Uh, and we do that because it's essentially a subject tracking mode. So you tell your, you essentially tell your camera what your subject is, and then the camera will automatically shift its autofocus points to stay on that subject, no matter where that subject moves to in the frame, or even if you recompose. So this opens up a world of opportunity for shooting. Um, and uh, Fujifilm calls it wide tracking. Nikon calls it 3D tracking. And... Um, Sony calls it lock-on AF, but now they're changing it to what they're calling real-time tracking. So every camera has some sort of analogous mode, and it essentially works by you just—you still have control over autofocus because you you're basically instructed to tell the camera what your subject is, um, and you do that by just placing your AF point over your subject 
and then initiating autofocus in AFC. And then the camera will understand what was underneath that autofocus point, basically the subject that was underneath that autofocus point, and then continue to track it as it moves around the frame. And that really, really frees you up to compose as you want or for um, action sports like soccer or rugby where you have one player in mind, the, the person with a ball, you initiate on that player and the camera will actually track that player uh, even if he moves erratically or quickly. And that, again, that, could get, that gives you shot opportunities that you may not have gotten before because if you're too busy trying to keep an AF point over your player and is moving around erratically, you know, there are times where you would just lose the subject or that AF point would suddenly fall if the player moved away from that AF point and you didn't react quickly enough and it, it might end up focusing on something else, whatever's under that AF point at that time. And you'll miss the, the best moment to get that photo. Exactly. They're like little tricks the camera manufacturers have, have, have put into their um, cameras to get around this. So one of them is there's a setting that allows you to tell the camera, how long should I wait? If I sense a, a distance change under my AF point, basically like there was a player there and then there wasn't. So now that AF point is seeing something at infinity or the tree behind. Um, there's a setting that allows you to tell the camera how long to wait before refocusing to whatever it is underneath that AF point. Um, so that's kind of how they got around got around that. Like you could be a little sloppy and have the AF point fall off your subject and it would still wouldn't shift, immediately shift to whatever's under that AF point. Um, but increasingly, as these subject tracking systems are getting better and better, you don't even need that. You actually want the camera to be as responsive as possible because if it's still tr- tracking your subject and it's, it's changing in distance to the camera then you want the autofocus system to constantly resample and refocus. And what we're seeing now is there are tracking systems that are that are so good that you can basically rely on it for almost all types of photography. So uh, I, I do this with Nikon 3D tracking. Uh, even for static subjects, I find it faster to just place the F1 over my subject, have press the shutter, and recompose to the composition I want I find it faster to do that than to move my AF point around to place it on the subject and then focus. Yeah. And same goes with um, Sony's real-time tracking, which they now um, they've announced in or not, it actually it's it's shipped. It's in the A6400 as well as the A9, which is their sports flagship camera. And that's actually the best subject tracking system we've ever seen, where it um, there's a little green box and you just place your point over your subject and it is so sticky um, and it's so fast like you can just wave the camera around wildly or have your subject move wildly and it'll it'll stick to that subject like glue okay we're going to take a break and we're going to come back um, and we're going to try and get some more stuff this you're, you're dumping so much information it's hard to keep all this in my brain here so let's take a break grab a cup of tea while you listen to our um, ad read and we'll be right back Masters of Photography is a unique online learning platform that brings together some of the world's most acclaimed photographers, the Masters. You can enjoy an unprecedented insight into the way these photographers work during intimate lessons that capture their knowledge, ethos, and philosophy. I've taken the Masters of Photography course with Joel Myrowitz, one of my favorite photographers, and I was impressed by his passion for photography and his desire to transmit his knowledge to others. With more than five hours of video and 34 lessons, Joel Marowitz discusses technique, inspiration, and his career, and gives some practical tips about shooting in the street, taking portraits, and even still life photography. 
I strongly recommend this course with Joe Myrowitz, and Masters of Photography has a special offer for photoactive listeners. Get 5% off any course with the code photoactive. Go to mastersof.photography and enter the coupon code photoactive or use the link in our show notes. That's mastersof.photography. I really enjoyed this course, and I think you will too. Okay, so we're back, and, and I've got a couple of points I want to make and a couple of really important questions. First of all, one thing that I like to do, because I don't like to worry too much about um, things being out of focus, and, and I generally don't shoot pictures to have that b- 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 background blur thing. I try to keep my lenses around f5.6, f5.8. So this gives a whole lot of wiggle room for the focus. Um, I know that many people want to shoot um, with a smaller aperture and they like that b- 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 background blur, um, but it's generally not essential for me. The only time I kind of like it is when I'm doing macro photography. And in that case, I'm not moving and, and it's a different story. So I would recommend for people who are worried about focus, even if they're not using these advanced autofocus modes, to keep your f-stop in the middle instead of really high and really well. You also get a sharper picture, don't you? Uh, yeah, on, with a lot of lenses, they hit their peak sharpness. A couple stops stop down from wide open. But um, with some of the advancements in optics we've seen lately, there are lenses now that, like f1.4 lenses that are tack sharp by f2 or f2.8, um, or even, f, at, even at f1.4 or wide open. Um, but you know, you don't have you don't have much wiggle room. You don't have that much depth of field. But if that's a look that you want, then yeah. it's, it's nice to have an autofocus system that's capable of taking advantage of fast lenses because that gives you that artistic effect. But also in low light, it gives the camera more light, which gives you much better image quality, lower noise, and things like that. And you can use lower ISO. You can use a faster shutter speed, etc. Um, another another question I have about uh, AFC mode is. How much of a hit on your battery does this take? Because instead of focusing just once, it's focusing all the time. So this must use a lot of power. It's focusing as long as you have your um, AF on button pressed or the shutter half depressed. If you're not and you're just composing, um, then it's not focusing. So sure, if you're while you're actually continuously focusing, there's a, a bigger drain on battery. Um, but it's you know that's that's the cost you pay. So early on, you were explaining phase detection, um, and you mentioned contrast detection. Um, what's the difference? How does that one work? So contrast detection actually just um, moves the focus element in the lens, or um, you know, they call it wobble. Uh, basically, you can think of it as a little wiggle where it moves the lens focus element back and forth until the su- subject underneath your AF point uh, has the maximum contrast, because in focus is defined by your uh, subject having maximum contrast. If you think of a black and white line that you're focusing on, if you blur it, if you defocus it, it turns into gray, right? But when it's yeah. in focus, there's a sharp black-white line transition. So that would ha- that's maximum contrast. So it's just looking for maximum contrast. Um, the downside of this is that, and this is how a lot of digital cameras first started focusing, um, using contrast detection because they didn't quite have um, these advanced phase detection um, on sensor capabilities yet. Basically, the, the downside is you you forcefully you have to wobble the lens focus element um, to find the point of maximum contrast, and that takes time. Um, and you also had way back when there were some cameras that would have this issue with you know slightly defocused images because it was going through a wobble. Um, 
most cameras these days are, are pretty good at uh, making sure that they snap the photo at the moment that the subject has reached maximum contrast or in focus. Um, Panasonic actually uses what's known as um, depth from defocus or DFD. You may have heard of this. It's uh, it essentially uses it's constantly wobbling. Um, but what they've done is they've profiled their lenses. So they understand the defocus characteristics of their lenses and what a defocused point would look like for that lens. And so they have to actually purposefully almost have a slightly out of focus um, image to then make that measurement to then figure out where, which direction to drive the lens um, and how much to, to get it in focus. So with Panasonic cameras, it's, um, it, it's actually pretty good, but you do see in fast frame rate shooting, you'll have some images that are out of focus as it's going through that wobble, um, but they're getting better and better. And so they're, they're getting pretty competitive for a system that does not have phase detection. Okay, so Jeff's X-T3 has an all mode, which is basically point and shoot. Yeah, that's that's the other mode um, that most cameras offer, and that's complete auto. Most that's cameras, he point. said, now I feel like, you know, I don't have a good enough camera anymore. See how they do it? They really get you, don't they? Yeah, well, they're constantly innovating and advancing, right? So, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah you, some people feel left behind, but... Yeah. So how does that work? Um, so odd, so that basically the, the camera just makes up its own mind about um, what to focus on, and usually it'll focus on the nearest thing. Um, however, now that these cameras have face detection capabilities and even eye detection capabilities, auto will usually have um, an option where you can turn face detection on or off, and so it'll prioritize human subjects. And again, it'll prioritize the nearest one. Why is it so hard to detect eyes on animals? Is it because of different colors of animals? Basically, it's a, it's a machine learning problem. So what they do with these new autofocus modes, um, it's already available on the Sony a7 III and a7R III, and it's coming to the Sony a6400 and a9 in June. Um, and Panasonic actually has, like, I think they have just general pet detection um, on their newest cameras. They essentially train their AF systems using using machine learning. So uh, it's it's all about training um, a, a model by feeding it a database of hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of images of um, pets or humans. Um, and it's not just like one human. It's pictures of many different humans, many different faces, uh, looking in different directions. Um, so they're able to train their AF algorithm to recognize eyes of people and pets. Um, and when they, when they feed this database of information to train the, the model, um, usually what they've done is they, they have already gone in and picked in the image, kind of just selected that this is a face or this is an eye, and that helps train the model. Uh, and funny enough, actually, when, when they, you have these different training data sets for, um, for these AF models, you have to, uh, the user has to go in and select, do I want the camera to focus on humans or pets? It can't look for them altogether. Olympus has also used machine learning to train their AF uh, system to detect planes, trains, and automotives. Uh, again, just feeding it. So basically, even if you say you're photographing a motorcycle, uh, it'll actually focus on the head or the helmet uh, of that motorcyclist automatically, but you have to go in and you have to select um, whether whether or not you want the camera to do focus on trains or planes or automotives or turn all that off and just go back to face and human detection. 
Is that where the technology is going now with more and more specificities like that? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, machine learning is kind of giving all these capabilities that you could train it to, based on whatever data set you feed uh, during your training uh, process, you can have it detect whatever you want. Like, you have to detect books if you want. It's, I don't know why you'd want to do that. but I take lots of photos of books, don't you? <laughs> I have a whole gallery of book photos. I'll send you a link. No, I'm kidding. I can imagine that a lot of them are going to um, start doing or probably have already started doing machine learning for food. Food photography is a huge field. Yeah, so do you really need... Yeah, well, I don't know. People, when they're taking... Uh, Jeff, you just put a photo on Instagram the other day. You better link in the show notes of, of coffee and, and pastries and stuff on a table. Um, the food may not have been moving, but you were, if it wasn't on a tripod, right? Usually, that's just the nearest thing, and and it's okay. And there's actually, I, I can see a downside to having too many different categories, right? You don't want to go into your AF menu and constantly be changing what you want the camera to focus on. And that's where um, this sort of fuzzy subject tracking is is so powerful with uh, with Nikon 3D tracking and uh, Sony's real-time AF. Basically, it's it understands whatever's under your AF point without even having any, you know, any context or subject that it's looking for. It just looks at pattern. Uh, it just basically does pattern recognition. It looks for the color um, that is under your AF point when you initiate the brightness, uh, whether or not it's a, it's a face, and also the distance. Um, and it uses all that information to then track your subject. And the reason distance is so important is because um, if you're tracking a subject, it's probably not going to accelerate from like 100 meters to one meter unless it's a rocket ship. So, you know, it knows that you know, if I suddenly detect a very different distance, then um, ignore that, for example. Right, that it's, it's, it's made a false positive on something else. Yeah. So it knows exactly. to ignore that. Okay. Yeah. Let, let's try to wrap up. This has been really, really interesting. And for the, for the person like me who just wants to get things more or less in focus without worrying, um, what I'm understanding here is that I should be using AFC with wide tracking. Is that the best way? Uh, for Again, this is using Fujifilm terminology. Yeah, uh, increasingly these the subject tracking modes are getting so good that yeah, you can just leave it in that mode and just let the camera worry about autofocus. The only exception is, let's say I want to shoot something where I want something in the background to be in focus, and then I need to switch to single point and choose my point. No, because you can just select the background, just put your initial oh, point right, in the, right in the background, okay. and then. And like I said, it's it's so much faster than moving around the AF point. Um, the one thing I should mention, though, is that so there's still performance differences from camera to camera. The Sony 6400 and A9 are now top of the line in, in subject tracking. The Nikon D5 is probably right up there as well. Uh, the Fuji X-T3 and X-T30 have gotten really good of late. Um, there's a big step up from the X-T2 and X-T20. But one thing I wanted to mention is that uh, not all camera companies have converged on on they're starting they're starting to converge on this whole idea of you know put your f point over your subject half press and recompose but for example nikon's z series mirrorless cameras um oddly decided to forego that even though the dslrs did it wonderfully um instead you have to hit the okay button or tap the screen to start subject tracking and in professional sports or in very fast-paced scenarios that Totally. Just yeah, who looks at the LCD work. when they're shooting like that? Exactly. Yeah, and having to move your thumb to the OK button or to the zoom out button to exit subject tracking is it, it's strange. But most camera ca companies have converged on this idea that you just put your point over your subject, half press, and then the camera will track it. And that's their subject tracking mode. 
Um, however, not all cameras have figured out um, this, this whole idea that when in candid portraiture or wedding and events, or even when you're shooting your kids, um, or when I'm shooting my daughter and her mom, I want to be able to select who to focus on. And um, Sony, we have, Sony still has this thing where you can like prioritize different faces, but that doesn't work for weddings and events and candid portraiture. If you, you, you want to select the person on the fly at that moment. And so um, thankfully, the Sony, um, as well as Canon, if you place your AF point over, uh, you say you have three people in the scene, you just put your AF point over uh, the subject that you want in focus and you have press it'll track that person. And Sony will automatically jump to IAF if it's a human face. And and the great thing about the new Sony system as well as Canon is that even if that person looks away or even if they turn their back to you, it just reverts to general subject tracking and still keeps track of so them. When it, doesn't see the, when it doesn't detect the eyes, it changes back. That just general subject tracking, that's really really important because when, if you want to capture that candid moment when they look back at the camera, then it's already pre-focused on that person and then it can just jump right back to IAF and grab the eye and wouldn't have to move the focus on very much because it's already been focusing on that person. And that matters so much for like, candid photography or event photography. Um, and I, we'd like to see more camera manufacturers that the Fuji, for example, when you have face detection on, you have no ability to choose um, in the wide plus tracking mode, you have no, idea, no ability to choose which face. It's just going to pick the nearest, biggest one. Um, and that's, that's, that's an oversight, but I, I'm sure they'll, they'll fix it. Okay. I want to thank you very much, Rishi, for explaining all this to us. Um, I'm going to have to listen to this episode again to, to, to pick up on everything. But, but what this has taught me is to try out the different autofocus modes on my camera because I've always just tried the single point because I just never felt that I trusted the other modes. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for explaining all this stuff to us. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be here. Today, as we record this, so this will be a couple of weeks uh, when you're listening to it, uh, Adobe released new versions of Lightroom and Lightroom Classic. Uh, a couple points to note. One, they've finally, finally, finally gotten rid of the CC moniker. So Lightroom is the, the new app, the cloud-based app, and Lightroom Classic is the classic app that's uh, been around for 10 or 11 years. That's good to note. But the thing that I want to point out is there's a new feature called uh, texture. There's a texture slider. And what that does is it, it basically lets you apply sharpening or, or you know, softening to like mid-range areas. And where you'll find this really helpful is when you're editing pictures of people and you want to smooth out wrinkles or blemishes or you know discoloration, but you don't want to go in and use the healing tool to do all that. Uh, this, this new feature really does a good job of that while still keeping the detail that you want, the, the, the sharper details. So uh, that's with the, the brand new versions uh, that have just been released. If you're on the, the um, Lightroom photography plan, the Adobe photography plan, uh, you'll get those automatically. Kirk, what do you have this week? Everyone who's listening, raise your hand if you don't have more than one camera bag. Uh, not many hands went up, did they? Um, I think most photographers end up, like the discussion we had about tripods, you buy one, it's not right, you buy another. Um, I, I know you've got a lot of camera bags. I've got a lot of camera bags. Actually, I don't. I only have three. But, um, but last year, 
I decided that so w- whenever I'm out, I carry a small knapsack with me. It's just like it's attached to me. And I decided I don't always need a camera bag because I'm not always carrying a lot of cameras. So I bought this orange thingy, which is defined as a shockproof camera photo bag for SLR, SLR, TLR, camera, in-suit partition padded case for Sony, Canon, Nikon, DSLR, shot or flashlight. That's the Amazon keyword description. Basically, it's soft foam with orange around it, and it's got some Velcro um, dividers in it. And I could put a, a camera body or two. I could put a few lenses in it. And I could just drop it in my knapsack. It's not bigger than my knapsack. So it'll fit as like a camera bag inside the knapsack. It's got a kind of sleeve that you can pull up around the outside with a drawstring. So you could actually use it as is as a camera bag and just hold it by the drawstring. Um, it's very light. It weighs just a couple of ounces. It's just foam and, and plastic. And it's a great idea if, let's say you're traveling, you want to carry a few lenses, stick them in a suitcase or a knapsack or whatever, and you don't need a full camera bag. It's a great way to protect your gear when it's inside something else. I'm going to link to one on Amazon, which I think is the exact same one I bought here in Amazon UK. It costs 20 bucks. There's probably cheaper versions too. That can also be a really good option if you're traveling and you don't want to make it really obvious that you're carrying a camera bag. I mean, some camera bags are really obvious, some are less so. But if you're just carrying you know, a, a beat-up backpack that's less appealing to potential thieves, this is a good way to keep your stuff in it and not have all your all your lenses and stuff banging around in the bottom. Definitely. You put your Leica in this, in, in your beat-up knapsack, and people won't realize you're carrying a Leica. Perfect. Exactly. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or in Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app. Don't forget that you can get 5% off any course at Masters of Photography with the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE. That's PHOTOACTIVE in one word. Until next week, thanks again for listening.